This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When the ice breaks, when the hot shake in the town and the moxie in winter, the end of my love for now and you spent your summer. Hey everyone, welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey Podcast, episode number 64. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week I take you back on a trip down memory lane back 50 years in history to the year 1971. And after the week we all lived through as I record this now, going back to 1971 really doesn't seem like such a a bad idea to me right now. We come to you from the Niagara region of Ontario, Canada, and we bring you all the big news stories of that time period. And this week, it's January 11th to January 17th, 1971. Our podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive, and they enable us to get all the great content we present to you every week from newspapers all over the world. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario. The Breakwall is located just steps from the Welland Canal and a few hundred yards from Lake Erie. Uh, they put out some of the finest craft beers in southern Ontario, and I think they have the best pub food on the planet. When things return to uh, a situation where we can all get out and get together, I'd love to meet any of our listeners for a beer and a burger at the break wall. If you like what uh, we do every day on Twitter and our uh, podcast each week, you can help us out by going to patreon.com uh, hot slash hockey 50 years and donate uh, your donations. Uh, and thanks to those who already have uh, subscribed already. They help us keep the lights on, enable us to get more great content for you. Subscribers not only get early access to this each like this free podcast each week but we have some really neat stuff in the special episodes where we delve more deeply and in greater detail than we can in these weekly free podcasts one of our really fun segments recently uh we talked about a philadelphia flyers rookie uh most people know him as the hound dog, Bob Kelly, and he ended up in jail as a result of a time-honored rookie initiation ritual, and it's really hilarious stuff that you'll only get right in the uh, special podcast. We also have projects we're working on to cover in depth the, the Ned Harkness mess that was in Detroit this season, uh, giving you a little more information than we're able to give you uh, each Friday and also we are uh, really looking into the death of Terry Sawchuk from a media point of view which I found was very interesting and I try to add my own perspective as a former police detective. We think a $5 month subscription is well worth your investment and if you have any interest in hockey history I, I think it's something that you, you really will enjoy. My dad always told me when it comes to history you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. 
Last week we had a lot going on. Uh, after that awful loss uh, to Toronto, Sid Abel requested a summit meeting with Detroit owner Bruce Norris. And the end result of that was that Sid Abel, uh, a Red Wing general manager and coach for most of the time since 1962, ended his relationship with the Detroit Hockey Club. We also talked about National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell cracking down on NHL brawlers, and he issued a bevy of fines that was supposed to keep the players on the straight and narrow. And we talked about the mid-season All-Star teams. Uh, there weren't many surprises, uh, but we told you who the lineups were anyway. This time around, we're doing it a little bit different with the... Uh, way we're looking at the highlights this week we're going to look at all the games of one specific team we'll tell you about that uh other news that we're going to talk about this week the red wings make it official they're going to name doug barkley the permanent head coach of the team there was a lot more trade talk centering around the leafs mike walton and uh, toronto's potential trade partners but the major trade this week did not involve the maple leafs and it was a shocker and uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, other news from around the National Hockey League. Now for the highlight, uh, highlighted games this week, I thought we'd look at one team's games to sort of show how, how the fortunes of one team can change from game to game over the course of just a, a few days. Our subject for this examination is a team that has held uh, the interest and captured the imagination of present-day hockey fans since back in the 1970s. And that, of course, was the California Golden Seals, whom ceased to exist in just a few years. This week's games for the Seals didn't begin on much of a happy note as they traveled to St. Louis for a start of a road trip to take on the Blues on Tuesday evening. We get the basis of our report from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch where a regular beat man for the Blues, Wally Cross, was pinch hit for by Gary Muller of the Dispatch and and he uh, uh, summarized the, the game pretty well. Uh, Gary started out by telling us that defenseman Barkley Plager was extended congratulations on scoring a goal, which was forced of the season in uh, the 8-2 romp by the Blues over the Seals. Uh, Barkley asked, what do you mean one goal? I should have received credit for two or maybe three. Now, Bark definitely earned credit for a goal in the third period, firing from the left edge of the goal crease after taking a perfect pass from veteran Bill Sutherland. But what Plager was actually referring to was that he received no credit for the other two goals for which he was responsible, each of which went up on the California side of the scoreboard. Plager said, ah, they were both flukes on the first one, which was scored by Donald Donahue. I'd skated him back into the net, but his shot bounced off Glenn Hall's hip and it went in. And on the second one, which was credited to Ron Stackhouse, I actually had the puck, but he made a wild swipe at it, and it went straight up off my stick and hit the top corner of the net. I thought the puck was behind the net, and I was looking for it when I heard uh, the fans cheering, and it was first that I realized it was actually a goal for the bad guys. Christian Bordelow and Jim Lorenz left nothing to chance in leading the way as the Blues ran up their highest goal total of this season. The 
game was viewed by 16,287 St. Louis fans, which was, believe it or not, in the Western Division, the smallest crowd of the season at the St. Louis Arena. And that was because of the hazardous driving conditions caused by ice on the streets. And that and that kept people home, we think. Bordelow, the little guy obtained uh, from the Montreal Canadiens, scored a goal and added three assists, and he was a force on the ice all night. He hadn't scored a goal on St. Louis ice since November 28th, and he hadn't even picked up an assist at home since the 17th. Now, Laurent scored two goals, and he now has 14 for the season, but he's only scored five at home. Lorenz quipped after the game. I was beginning to play here, to hate playing here until now. That's what the 23 year old told Gary Muller. Lorenz said that part of his difficulty in, in putting the puck in the net early, especially, was the adjustments and switching from center over to the left wing. Uh, Jim said, You find yourself swinging in towards the center instead of staying wide like you should be on the wing. It's a lot different angle that you're shooting from. He said, I had to practice my shot an awful lot. It seems like in recent games, I must have missed the net about 10 times. Jim says that he also believes that a part of the adjustment coming to St. Louis is a completely different style of play employed by the Blues as opposed to uh, his ex-Boston teammates. Uh, Lorenz said that the Blues are not an offensive team like Boston is, and that's where he's had trouble uh, with with his checking. At Boston, he wasn't worried about uh, if they scored against me because he knew they'd probably score five or six goals every game. They don't keep charts like Scotty Bowman does on how many goals and even how many shots are against you when you're on the ice. Blues coach Al Arbor, in his first year of coaching in the NHL, said uh, we'd been a little reluctant to shoot the puck recently, but we finally opened up tonight. Arbor said the Blues were missing the net at first, but they kept shooting and it finally paid off. Bordelow was the subject of some severe criticism on a television sports show in St. Louis earlier in the week. Well, actually Monday night. But he set up the first two goals with some nifty passing. And of course, passing too much was the criticism that was levied at Bordelow. Arbor said it's basic hockey. You shoot if you're in position to shoot, and you pass it off if another man is in a better position. And that's the way Bordelow plays. From St. Louis on Tuesday night, the Seals then journeyed to Toronto for the Wednesday night matchup against the Maple Leafs on uh, Canadian National TV at the uh, historic Maple Leaf Gardens. And less than 24 hours after they had been lambasted by the Blues, the Seals looked like an entirely different team, holding the red-hot Toronto Maple Leafs to a very entertaining 1-1 tie. The great Toronto sports writer Jim Vipond uh, was on hand. Jim doesn't often provide... Uh, game results he's more in the editorial category but he uh, was there to file a report for the game and we got most of our information from from that report by Jim Vipon. Jim uh, claims in his report claims reports in his report and he's very accurate on this that it was a goaltending display that was the highlight of this game the old man and the boy relatively speaking gave excellent exhibitions of national hockey league goaltending at the gardens in the 1-1 tie it was the seals first point in three games at maple leaf gardens this season for gary smith 15 years younger than the leaf jacques plant it was one of the busier nights of the whole season 
Uh, Smith will be 27 on February 4th, handled 51 shots, allowing only Paul Henderson's late breakaway to get past him. At the other end of the rink, it was Plant getting ready to celebrate his 42nd birthday on Sunday, missed only Jerry Eamon's short blast to the short side while handling a total of 36 shots, a surprising number of shot totals for such a low score. But that just indicates how well these two goaltenders actually played. Each goalie must have watched another few dozen shots, which bounced or rolled or trickled just beyond the legal limits of a netminder's territory in a freewheeling game that actually improved with age. This was a hockey game of three parts, each radically different from the other. There was a a little good hockey in the first period as the Seals adopted the Leafs' close-checking, man-on-man style of play. The hockey came in clusters around minor penalties with both goalies busy. Now the second period developed into fight night with several brawls breaking out when which referee Art Scove mysteriously managed to break down into major and minor penalty categories. Hockey as it should be played finally showed through in the third period with the crowd of 16,359 enjoying the end-to-end rushes which produced both goals of the game. Plant and Smith actually seemed to be so much in charge of their their nets despite the erratic defensive support that a 0-0 tie was actually in the making until ex-leaf of Punch Imlac's favorite vintage used Jim McKenney's right shin and the body to confound Plant and uh, score the first goal. That was, of course, Jerry Eamon, who played in Toronto, which seems like eons ago. He fired a low drive from the Toronto blue line that struck McKenney and bounced back onto Jerry's stick. The old left winger made the most of McKenney's body to hide his intentions from Plant, accurately shooting low to the short side to score on a shot the Toronto goalie probably still hasn't seen. That was early in the third period. Well, the Leafs didn't lay down and die. They came back with all three lines working into California territory time and time again, only to have the puck behave like a tennis ball in a road hockey match. Uh, Smith might have been using a few yo-yo strings himself as uh, the puck seemed to jump in his favor or roll away from his goal. Finally, at 15-18 of the final frame, Henderson split the Seals' defense of Wayne Malloyne and Doug Roberts to take a long pass from Normie Ullman and skate in alone and fool Smith. It was the picture play of this game. Those brawls in the second period really, uh, I don't know whether they ignited the team or not. Uh, they had a couple of interesting side benefits. One was uh, Guy Trache, the little right winger who this season... He's having a tough time getting ice time with the Maple Leafs. Things just aren't going as well for him as as he thought they would. Well, uh, during the brawling and the uh, fisticuffs that was going on at either end of the ice, Trache jumped off the bench and exercised his legs, skating around the rink, oblivious to the fighting going on, and just uh, taking it easy and trying to get his legs a little bit of work. It was kind of an interesting sight. But they say nobody gets hurt in hockey fights, and then once again, they were proven wrong. Carl Vadney, who was the Seals' best player and an all-star defenseman, uh, even at the worst of times, came out of the one brawl with a badly injured thumb, and he was sent to hospital for x-rays. He said he hurt the thumb when he struck somebody on the head, and Bobby Bond laid claim to that, suggesting anybody's in trouble who tangles with a square head 
referring, of course, to himself. Young Ron Stackhouse, another fine defenseman, uh, he crossed sticks and fists with Brian Spencer, and he came out the worst from where? With a black eye and a cut lip, to which California coach Fred Glover referred, looks like a thumb job to me. The Seals actually played well, considering that this was their second game in as many nights after losing, as we mentioned, 8-2 to in St. Louis. But then after that loss, they had to hang around an airport for hours. Their charter flight uh, just didn't depart right away. They don't know what the holdup was. And they didn't reach Toronto until noon because of the storm conditions in St. Louis. So after that uh, really uh, tough effort, really energetic effort as well, the Blues were given Thursday off more or less to catch their breath by the schedule makers before they headed back home to Oakland to take on the high-flying New York Rangers who had managed once again to move it past the Bruins into first place in the Eastern Division earlier in the week brandishing the best goalkeeping in the NHL this year the Rangers could beat you with their offense or their defense whatever the game required but on this night neither would be enough to subdue a Seals team that by all intents and purposes should have been travel weary and ripe to suffer another blowout especially against one of the NHL's elite teams. The New York Daily News sent up reporter Dana Mosley along with the Rangers to Oakland. Uh, he alternates coverage of, of the New York team with uh, the great Red Foley. Dana filed this report. He says with the first place at beck and call, the rambling Rangers once again made the mistake of turning their worst side to the floundering California Golden Seals. And with one New York heir following another, and with big Gary Smith nobly filling out the California goal, the blue shirts bowed 3-1 and lost the Battle of Oakland for the first time. Mosley reports that Smitty, who had been the Seals' one bright light in the last 10 games when the worst of the worst did manage to win, but only once, did everything but score and he came mighty close to doing that unassisted. In the waning seconds of the game with Eddie Jackman pulled from the New York net, Smitty stopped the Rangers shot, carried the puck out across the blue line to the red line and was about to shoot into the empty cage when the enemy interceded. Overall, Smith stopped 38 shots to Eddie Jockman's 17. This defeat was the Rangers' second in three games this season uh, on the Bay and it ended a six-game winning streak for the Broadway Blue Shirts. For some reason, Rangers failed to take this team seriously every time they play them. Billy Hickey and Dennis Hextall sandwiched first-period goals around the Lone Rangers score, which was made by Jean Rattel. Gary Jarrett produced the insurance tally in the second period. The Rangers, who've been having bad first periods, even during uh, the recent winning streak, had only themselves to blame for the fact that California went out and grabbed the 2-1 lead in the first 20 minutes. Sloppy passing, particularly in their own ice, and the continued failure to clear the puck as it lay loose and inviting outside the New York cage nullified what good skating and passing the Rangers might have done. The Rangers were caught 
in a three-on-two rush in the eighth minute of the game, and the two defensemen, Brad Park and Arnie Brown, couldn't break it up. Teddy Hampson, an old Ranger himself, got the puck to another former New Yorker, Billy Hickey, who fired a 30-footer that eventually found the back of the net. En route, it ricocheted off the inside of Jackman's skate. About four minutes later, Rattel tied it by converting a Rod Bear pass out, uh, his 15-footer representing his 19th goal of this campaign, which is second high on the club. While Rod Sealing and California's Ernie Hickey were serving five-minute majors for fighting, Norm Ferguson intercepted a Dave Ballone pass in the New York zone. He made a pass to Gary Crotto, and another pass went to Dennis Hextall, and Dennis made no mistake uh, but it was uh, the rebound that actually he put into the net past Jockerman, who made a sparkling save on the first try. A turning point of the game might have been in the last minute of the second period when Smith made spectacular saves on shots by Jobert and Bobby Nevin, uh, who were both in alone on him and uh, uh, fired their shots unmolested by a California player, but Smith was more than equal to the occasion. Other than those rare uh, close-in scoring chances, about the only bright things the Rangers could point to in this game, except for some great all-round play by Brad Park, was the penalty-killing expertise of Ron Stewart, the old-timer who'll probably skate forevermore, made penalties to Fairburn and Ballone and Stemkowski seem like no problem at all. Finally, with about three minutes left in the second, California took advantage of another Ranger lapse in front of the net, and when his mates uh, hesitated to do something about a puck lying loose, Jockman dove to smother it, but he missed, and Gary Jarrett took it and fired it into the unguarded New York cage to make it 3-1. That was the final. Of course, the Steel's steady improvement this week was just too good to be true and just not sustainable. Sunday night, it was the expansionist Vancouver Canucks who made their way down the West Coast to Oakland, and they had their way with the Seals, taking a 3-1 win. The Oakland Tribune's John Porter uh, provides a basis for our summary of this game, and it also gives a little flavor on how the uh, local rags were actually covering the Seals at this point in time. Jerry Eamon gingerly placed an ice pack on the freshly sewn cut on his left shin and sadly shook his head. The mark left by a flying puck didn't hurt the Oakland Seals veteran winger half as much as the sting of this defeat. What really made the 3-1 loss to the Vancouver at the Oakland Arena smart was, to a man, everyone said, officiating. To me, a couple of bum calls can change the complexion of a hockey game, Eamon said with a wince. After Vancouver scored one goal, they skated and checked better. It gave that team momentum. A short distance away in the Seals' dressing room, Coach Fred Glover was voicing similar thoughts. That first Vancouver goal came off a face-off that shouldn't have even been an RN, Glover said, warming up to what was really irking him. That goal was scored... Uh, it was a short one by Danny Johnson at 13:15 of the first period, and it was set up by a centering pass from Garth Rizzuto, recently called up from Rochester, who wound up with the puck behind the Seals' net after that uh, questionable face-off position. Glover was asked by the assembled writers what he thought 
of referee Brian Lewis, <laughs> and Glover's reply went like this. I don't think there is a word for that man. I've never seen that man work a good game in my life. He's out in left field. When he's out there, he's oblivious to everything going on. He's in a fog. Referring to the uh, questionable position of the faceoff that Glover uh, was talking about, he said that they brought the puck down into our end for shooting it in, and yet in the third period, Lewis wouldn't do the same to them. Uh, he just, uh, very, very inconsistent, never calls the game the same way. This is where Glover's words. Another call by Lewis had a profound effect on the outcome as well. Uh, at this point, the Seals were down 2-1 to one after Norm Ferguson uh, whipped in Oakland's only goal on a feed from Dennis Hextall with about seven minutes left in the game. 20 seconds later, Vancouver's defenseman, Pat Quinn, he was sent off for two minutes for Tripp and Hextall. The momentum Eamon spoke of was now with the Seals. Canucks goalie Dunk Wilson bobbled the shot just 21 seconds into the power play and Eamon uh, swiped at the loose puck, a lying in the crease, and it turned the red light on. That made the score 2-2, two to two, right? Well, that was wrong. Lewis said he blew the whistle and the puck was frozen and the goal would not count. So the score remained 2-1 to one for Vancouver and of course, what happened? That returned momentum to the Canucks. Hextall said, I didn't hear the whistle, who, and he was just a few feet from Eamon on the play. Eamon said, no, nah, I didn't hear it either. The puck was near his glove between his legs, but it was loose or I couldn't have got at it. Lewis was calling them faster than usual whenever the goaltender did have possession instead of allowing a second or two when the puck is lying there for anybody to take a shot at. Porter's report didn't really talk much about the rest of the play of the game. Uh, what he did mention at the end was that the loss for the Seals, coupled with the Los Angeles win, dropped uh, Oakland, as he called them. They are the California Golden Seals, but Oakland writers still insist on calling team the the uh, Oakland Seals, not the California Golden Seals. The, the Seals, in any event, dropped Oakland, uh, dropped three points behind the Kings in the Western Division cellar, which is good news to the Montreal Canadiens, who of course own Oakland's draft pick in the first round in next spring's amateur draft. So this week, the Seals have run basically the entire gamut of results a team could possibly face in such a short time. They were blown out. They had a hard-fought tie. They got an upset win over one of the league's elite teams and then a loss to a team that shouldn't even be remotely close to their talent level. What a week for the Seals. For the past few weeks, if you've been following us, uh, we've been telling you about all the trade chatter around the NHL. This week was no exception. Lots of talk about various players being on the move from one team to another, in some cases from one team to another team to another team. But there was a huge difference this week. On Wednesday night, a major deal suddenly materialized that most observers felt could radically alter the fortunes of both of the teams that were involved. The Detroit Red Wings, and we have spent enough time talking about them this year, this uh, year it seems, uh, 
They had been threatening a massive shakeup all year, and they had given new but very experienced general manager Ned Harkness a mandate to redesign the players who work for this franchise. Ned didn't take long. He dealt superstar Frank Mahovlich to the Montreal Canadiens for three players, two of them fairly young, more or less prospects, going to Detroit was a highly regarded young right winger by the name of Mickey Redmond, a hard shooting, uh, fast skating, very offensive minded player and a young left wing center by the name of Guy Sharon. The Red Wings also got a veteran utility man, Bill Collins. I call him a utility man because really Bill was an all-purpose forward. He could fill in on any of the of the three lines. He's also an ex- excellent defensive skater and a great penalty killer. Uh, we'll give you the uh, reporting on this that we got from both Montreal and Detroit on this deal for their perspectives. We'll start with Pat Curran of the Montreal Gazette, whose report was filed from Bloomington, Minnesota. Pat said you knew something was going on when Phil Roberto of the AHL Voyagers showed up at the airport in Dorval in Quebec when the team was leaving, heading for their game in Minnesota. The Habs and the writers wouldn't have been more surprised to see Frank Mahovlich. Well, they will see Frank Mahovlich today. He joins the Canadians here after a trade which sent three players, two from the Habs roster to Detroit for the veteran. And the Big M says, I'm very, very happy to be going to Montreal. And who wouldn't be happy to leave that circus that has become the Detroit Red Wings? But of course, the Montreal players didn't know this when Roberto suddenly appeared on the on the scene and got on the plane with them. They started looking at one another, and not because the rejuvenated minor leaguer looked prosperous in his big raccoon coat. The question in their minds was which player was going to have to sit out in favor of Roberto against the North Stars. Well, right away, the uh, reporters that travel with the team started counting heads to see who was missing? Who was dispatched down the American League? Leon Rochefort, Rajon Uhl, Ralph Backstrom, Mark Tardif, Pierre Bouchard, all the possible taxi squad members, they were all on hand, present, and accounted for. John Ferguson checked in and ribbed Mickey Redman with a little high rip for Rip Van Winkle in reference to Mickey's sleep-in from practice Tuesday, for which the Canadians, by the way, find him. Peter Mahovlich showed up in a big black leather coat decorated with military brass buttons. Physiotherapist Yvon Belanger came along and he was asked which player might be injured. And he looked with a grin and said, how should I know? The number of players increased at boarding time, but the Air Canada attendant delayed handing out the boarding passes. Uh, Backstrom, Ralph Backstrom said he won't give them out until the coach gets here. Looks like some guys are not going to be making this trip and speculation began to increase just a few minutes later the professor assistant general manager of the canadians ron Curran, sauntered along and he had a glint in his eye obviously enjoying a secret he was immediately mobbed by the hockey writers who were present and he said almost casually we've made a trade that's what's been going on all day it's three for one Billy Collins, Mickey Redmond, and Guy Sharon are going to Detroit 
for Frank Mahovlich. One of the writers, obviously uh, disbelieving because of Quran's cavalier attitude about such huge news, asked, Frank who? Quran went on to say the trade was completed only a, a few minutes ago. Frank will leave Detroit tonight or maybe in the morning and he'll be in our in the lineup for our game against Minnesota. No one had actually noticed that while they were everyone was admiring uh, Mahavlich's military coat or Phil Roberto's raccoon coat that Collins and Redmond had walked down the hall and they had conferred private, privately with Coach Al McNeil and Quran. The four actually met in the airport bookshop where Mickey might have actually been looking for a copy of Where Do I Go From Here? And there, the coach and the assistant GM informed them of the trade. McNeil actually explained a little later that the deal for the Big M had been discussed for two weeks, even before uh, all the talk today and before the demise of Sid Abel. So Abel probably uh, sowed the seeds for this deal, but it reached the hot point where it was actually uh, possible to happen just yesterday afternoon. I left the airport not knowing or not whether the trade was completed. As is so often the case in these kind of hockey transactions, neither of Collins nor Redmond had any inkling about a trade when they brought their bags uh, to the airport for the trip to Minnesota. Uh, Collins said it always comes as a shock when you're traded, but that's hockey, I guess, and I got to accept it. Collins said that he had to go call his wife before she heard about it on TV. Collins then went away from, from Pat Kerr and walked up to Guy LaPointe and asked him to give uh, a message to the rest of the teammates. And LaPointe said, why don't you give it to him yourself? Where are you going? And Collins uh, told LaPointe, I'm on the move. I'll be seeing you. And he walked away. Pete Mahovlich, of course, was one of the first people that writers asked for his reaction and uh, Pete said, when you lose two teammates to get your brother, it's kind of a surprise. But I think Frank will be happy here. At least with this kind of management, he'll know who's boss. It's kind of funny, Pete said. I talked to him on Saturday and mentioned the trade rumors. And he said, well, here in Detroit, everybody's on the block. As for the Detroit perspective of this deal, Jack Berry of the Detroit Free Press was the guy who broke the news in the Motor City. Barry uh, worded his report this way. Frank Mahovlich was traded Wednesday to the Montreal Canadiens as new general manager Ned Harkness wasted no time in making his first move to rebuild the Red Wings with youth. The Red Wings acquired 23-year-old right-wing Mickey Redmond, 27-year-old penalty-killing specialist Bill Collins from the Canadiens, and 22-year-old left-winger Guy Chiron from Montreal's American Hockey League uh, farm club, the Voyageurs. The players are supposed to report to their new teams in time for Thursday's games. This was all happening on Wednesday. The Wings meet the Penguins at 8 p.m. at the Olympia and the Canadians are playing the North Stars at Bloomington, Minnesota. Uh, Red Wings coach Doug Barkley, his immediate reaction was, I'm not happy that we had to let Frank go, but I'm really happy with the three players we're getting. Barkley said that Collins is a penalty-killing specialist and the team is weak in that department and that he wanted to get a load off Gordy and Alex Delvecchio as far as killing penalties were concerned. The, the, they're the two Red Wings' best players, of course, and they do everything on that hockey team. And at their ages, they can probably use a bit of a breather. Barkley said he would put Sharon 
Khan in Mahavlich's spot on the line with Del Vecchio and Howe, what a break for an unproven rookie. Barkley went on to say that if Sharon can score, and they feel he can, he'll get the chances playing with Alex and Gordy. Kishiran's 5'10", 170-pounder, and he had two goals in 15 games with the Habs before being sent to the AHL, where he had 18 points in 23 games, five of them goals. Coach Barkley also said that Redmond would take Wayne Connolly's place on Bruce McGregor's third line, and, and that he'd use Connolly uh, on the power play and on the fourth line. Connolly's been having a rough time this year, and Redmond is actually going to be the the top right winger behind Gordy, how Connolly had held that spot. Collins, as expected, will kill penalties and he'll see spot duty as well. His main uh, position is right wing, but he can play center and can even sp- uh, spend time on left wing when he's needed. Munch- uh, Redmond was Montreal's fourth leading scorer with 30 points in 38 games, uh, scoring 14 and setting up 16 others. Mickey is a 5'11", 185-pounder from Northern Ontario, Kirkland Lake to be exact, uh, which is one of the leading incubators of NHL players. Players like Peter Kennedy, Ted Lindsay, Dick Duff, the Hillman brothers all hail from Kirkland Lake. Red Wing uh, winger Tom Webster also was raised in Kirkland Lake. The addition of players who are 22, 23, and 27 years of age will lower the Red Wings average age another notch or so since Mahavlich was 33. Coach Barkley said it wasn't a case of Mahavlich's age, nor did the Wings get rid of him because he didn't produce. Barkley said, I think Frank even gave a little extra last weekend, and I appreciated it. Barkley, of course, is referring to the fact that uh, Mahavlich scored a few key goals in Barkley's first games after he was appointed the bench boss of the Wings. So that was the major trade this week and the perspective from both Montreal and Detroit. Frank Mahovlich from the Red Wings to the Montreal Canadiens in exchange for Mickey Redmond, who was the key player in the trade from uh, the Red Wings perspective. Young uh, forward Guy Chiron, who really hasn't proven in the NHL, and veteran Billy Collins, who will really add a lot of depth to the Red Wings lineup. But the effect that Frank Mahovlich will have on the Canadians was something that everybody speculated about. Frank keeps himself in excellent condition he's 33 years old but this guy has a lot left in the tank and reunited with brother Peter may give Frank a new outlook uh, a new outlook on life and I think Frank may experience uh, the things like players like Dick Duff commented in the past that when they went to Montreal they felt they were traded like men it gave them new leases on life and they got caught up in the success and the legendary uh, reputation of the Montreal Canadiens franchise and this could lead to, to lead to more uh, Stanley Cups for Montreal in the immediate future. We'll have to see how it plays out but this was the real big trade of the National Hockey League season according to a lot of people. The trade talk was dominating the NHL this week and we'll try and tell you a, a bit about the rest of it that was going on uh, as well. Uh The Mike Walton situation was not yet close to being resolved in Toronto, although according to the writing that was appearing in the Toronto papers and even uh, uh, the wire services like the Associated and Canadian Press and in some of the other uh, papers around the NHL, uh, they were all of the opinion that Walton's trade was imminent 
and he was going to one of several uh, places. But there was no trade to allow Walton to escape the clutches of the Maple Leafs, and uh, people were having a hard time figuring out why. Uh, we'll take a closer look at the Mike Walton case in an upcoming uh, bonus episode for our Patreon subscribers where we can talk a little bit more about the reports of uh, Mike's illnesses and what Alan Eagleson was doing to try and get Walton out of Toronto. But this week did begin with reports from Toronto and Vancouver that the Canucks were very, very interested in acquiring Walton, especially with Captain Orland Curtin back out of the lineup. The Canucks, like Buffalo, are offensively challenged and general manager Bud Poyle seemed to think that Walton was exactly what the Canucks needed. Leafs general manager Jim Gregory wasn't about to... Uh, trade Walton to the Canucks mainly because he didn't want to sell him to a team within the Eastern Division but Canucks uh, general manager Bud Poyle had a different take on it a real strange uh, take he said that he wasn't going to make a deal for Walton because the only player the Leafs wanted in a trade was Dale Talon and and Poyle said he really didn't want to trade Dale Talon. When Jim Gregory was asked about this by a couple of Toronto writers, he found it kind of amusing because as uh, Jim had told the writers before, he's well aware that Talon cannot be traded thanks to a National Hockey League regulation that prevents either Buffalo or Vancouver from dealing away their first pick in last June's amateur draft. This, uh, this is another example of Poyle's bluster and this is part of the uh, type of behavior that got him uh, booted out of Philadelphia. Bud tends to just shoot his mouth off. Everyone knows that Talon can't be traded. So why would he even bring up the fact that the Maple Leafs were making a request for Talon and nobody else? The Leafs well knew, especially a smart guy like Jim Gregory. They weren't going to be able to get Talon anyway. Now, Bud Poyle did confirm that he had made a, quote, definite offer to Toronto for Walton and one other player that turned out to be defenseman Brian Glennie, and that this offer did not include any player currently on Vancouver's roster. Bud's got to be talking draft choices because there's nothing down on the Vancouver farm that would be even remotely attractive to a team that has turned its season around like the Maple Leafs. A couple of days later, Poyle doubled down on his talent talk. He, he told Tom Watt of the Vancouver province exactly this. He said, why should I trade people like Talon, Gary Doak, and Dunk Wilson? Those are the players we're going to build around. Wilson's stock has obviously gone way up since recent road games in Boston and St. Louis. It was only a couple of weeks ago that Poyle told at a hockey luncheon he would trade Dunk Wilson if he could make the right deal. Now, this is how a lot of trade rumors really do get started. They come from general managers of other teams who, of course, are approached for trade talk, and they'll talk about the other teams, not about their own team. Poyle, in this talk with Tom Watt, said that Philadelphia is desperately trying to make a deal with Toronto and Montreal that would likely involve one of the Flyers' two goalies, Bernie Pront and Doug Favell, and, of course, that's all over the NHL. If the deal is made, said Poyle, the Flyers have told Vancouver they would like to take Serge Aubrey, the Canucks' own goalie, playing with the Rochester Americans of the American Hockey League. Poyle said, they've offered us a player acceptable to us for Serge Aubrey. So if they go ahead with the trade with Montreal-Toronto, we'll probably make a trade with them to send Aubrey there 
right away. A day later, it was revealed that the offer that Poyle made to Toronto was indeed for Walton and Brian Glennie, and what he offered Toronto was his first pick in the June amateur draft. Poyle had previously stated that under no circumstances would he trade the Canucks' first pick in the June draft, but that news came out and Bud Poyle did not deny it. Our final piece this week uh, comes from Stan Fischler, who uh, breathlessly reported to the Toronto Star a story about why Canada will never get another National Hockey League team. Now, I don't usually do Stan Fischler stories, although when his uh, reporting does prove to be accurate and true, I do like to report it and give him credit for that. This story uh, was based on statements by New York Rangers President Bill Jennings, to Stan apparently and Stan knew that such a report would gain him more notoriety in the hockey community especially in in Canada. The report says that the NHL would add at least two and possibly four teams by the 1974-75 season and conceivably sooner and that was uh, the word given to Fischler by William M. Jennings the head of the NHL's finance committee you disclosed this uh to, to stand this week. Jennings was the architect of big league hockey expansion and regarded in many quarters as the NHL's most influential owner, according to Stan Fischler. Uh, Jennings told Fischler that the most likely additions to the National Hockey League would be Atlanta, Cleveland, Kansas City, and Hempstead, Long Island, a suburb of New York City. Fischler says he had a two-hour conversation with Jennings in which the main points that were made were that Canada's largest non-NHL cities are too small in population to support Major League Hockey. Uh, another point was that Canadian and American collegiate hockey associations should adopt professional rules to facilitate the flow of those players to the big leagues and that hockey will overtake football, baseball, and basketball in popularity with United States sports fans. Jennings apparently is also of the opinion that the National Hockey League should make much greater use of the penalty shot and that he, Jennings, does not want to succeed Clarence Campbell as president of the National Hockey League. Jennings predicts a hockey boom in the 1970s similar to pro footballs in the 60s. He asserts that the next area of shinny settlement will be in the deep south. Jennings says Atlanta is the logical choice. They're breaking ground for a new coliseum there. And Tom Cousins, owner of the basketball team, is committed to having a hockey club there. Jennings says they're very eager. Nick Maletti, who is the president of the Cleveland Barons of the American Hockey League, has made it very clear to the NHL governors that he wants into the NHL as well, and Jennings suggests that the league might be receptive to any bid from Mr. Maletti. But the surprise plum, according to Fischler, and according to Jennings, could be the Long Island entry to play out of the soon-to-be-completed 14,000-seat Coliseum in Hempstead, New York, surrounded by one of the fastest-growing areas on the continent. Jennings describes it as a beautiful arena, and he says, There's no question in my mind that within five years, the New York metropolitan area could support 
two NHL teams. Jennings says that as president of the Rangers and being in favor of another team in New York, they would work out the territorial uh, the territorial rights deals that uh, is in place in the NHL. And Jennings added one more city. He said that Sidney Solomon Jr. of the St. Louis Blues has persuaded him that Kansas City would make a splendid addition to the National Hockey League. So that is our show this week in a tumultuous week in the National Hockey League. And what did we learn from these seven days? Well, we got all the details of a blockbuster trade between Detroit and Montreal that would alter the fortunes of both teams for years to come. Uh, we learned a lot about a typical week in the ongoing trials and tribulations of the poor California Golden Seals. And we were educated by Stan Fischler and William Jennings of the New York Rangers on why Canada will never have more than three National Hockey League teams. Next week, we have three uh, pretty interesting stories. We'll actually have a lot of stories for you next week. We're planning on, but uh, the main ones, Al Eagleson is going to inform the hockey world that he is stepping down as leaders of the National Hockey League Players Association. Uh, after informing everyone that he was going to skip the All-Star game because he didn't deserve to be there. Gordie Howe relents and he'll agree to appear in the annual All-Star contest which is held the 24th All-Star game at the Boston Garden and we will have all the details. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Andy, uh, we can't thank him enough for what he does. We, I wouldn't be here without Andy's Andy's help and his expertise. Andy's uh, in the business of producing podcasts professionally. And if you'd like to put something together, get a hold of me. I'll put you in touch with Andy and hopefully you can work something out. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our introduction music. If you ever get a chance to see them live when things return somewhat to normal, take in their show. It's a great high-energy production. Uh, I can't get enough of their music. Other uh, music uh, pieces and sound effects in the podcast are produced by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files from the Toronto Star, Toronto Global Mail, and of course, the many fine publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at, at Hockey50Years. We're on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago in Hockey banner. And we have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com, where we provide announcements about our podcast. Of course, you can download the podcast at your favorite podcast site. And don't forget our Patreon account at patreon.com slash hockey50years. Your donations uh, help us to improve what we're doing here. And we appreciate those who've already uh, subscribed. This is a, an amazing hockey season. Lots of news going on. And we hope you'll uh, be along with us for the rest of the way. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the